Where we left off last week, remember what we kind of left off with? Where was the, you know, the ending thing? What, what are we dealing with here at the end of Malachi? What's the big thing from Malachi to Matthew? 400 years of silence. Just, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? 400 years of silence. Nothing recorded, 400 years, all of a sudden, God breaks back in on the scene. And we're going to look at God breaking back in on the scene from four different accounts of the same gospel. As it's the same gospel in each account, but it's from four different viewpoints. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're written for specific purposes, I think. And, and they do give a different flavor of the events, and they record different things. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know, is the, are the called the synoptic gospels and then john is a little bit different john is very interesting the gospel there are some things that i still uh, wrestle with and john struggle with and and what he presents and and how he presents it there are some things in there that that make you say hmm i'm not sure i'm understanding how this is happening you know what's what's going on here it, it challenges you but they should challenge you the gospel should challenge us and they do challenge us. And so we're going to start, if you have your, your papers, with God breaking back in on the scene. Now, the picture I'm going to draw is not necessarily where God breaks in first. But this is what you'd really, you know, associate this part of the, the lesson with. Now, that is a crude drawing, but what do you think that is? A manger. My representation of said manger. Yes. But where does God break in on the scene here? 400 years of silence. What happens as God communicates with his people at the very beginning here? Where does it happen? Tell me where it happens. In the temple? Okay, but... This is, this is a little bit later. Where does he break in first? I think Laurel Ann's on the right track here, in my opinion. Talking to Mary, but he talks to somebody else first too. Because remember where we left off last week? Malachi. And he said, somebody's coming to prepare the way. So John the Baptist. And go, if you go to Luke 1, I want to cover a couple of verses in Luke 1. As Luke talks about the two births, and he, he, he does John the Baptist, and he does all these, and then he, and he does Jesus' birth, and he gives a great deal of time for both, and he starts with John the Baptist. Look at verse, uh, let's see, verse 13, because this is when Zacharias has gone in to do his priestly duties. He's been chosen to do these, which is another interesting thing, that this man gets chosen at this time to do these duties. So that he's at the right place when God wants to talk to him. And to bring about the man who's going to prepare the way for Jesus Christ, which is John the Baptist. So Zacharias is, is doing what he's supposed to be doing. And look at verse 10 before we get to the ones I want to read. The people are outside doing what? Praying. praying. I wonder, what are they praying for? What do you think these people are gathering around and praying for? 
I'm wondering too if these people are understanding, and like his people do understand, somebody's coming. God has promised that somebody's coming. What would they be praying for? That's somebody that's coming. They don't expect what they get, or they don't get what they expect. Let me put it that way. They don't get what they expect. But they do expect someone coming. And Zacharias is coming face to face with a message from God. Verse, let me go back to verse 12. Let me go back to verse 11. Now let me go back to verse 1. Now let's start at 11. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of the incense. Now look, look at that detail of that first. There's detail there. At the right of the altar. He could have just said the Lord, an angel of the Lord was standing there. But no, he, he points out it's at the right of the altar of, the in, of incense. 12. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him and fear gripped him. Which would be understandable, wouldn't it? That would scare me. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. They, they, that sums up John's purpose right there. Here's John's purpose. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And of course, Zacharias goes on to say, how can I be certain about that? And that's when he gets struck with dumbness. You know, it's, I don't have time to go into that. Anyway, that, that is, that is the, I think, the beginning here. God is breaking in on the scene here, and he's saying, I've got to prepare the way for Jesus. This is the plan that has been planned before the foundation of the world. And it's coming into fruition. And God is, is planting this with John the Baptist. And then we get to Mary and Joseph and the story here where he's bringing the Messiah in and breaking in on the scene here. All of this that we've talked about before leads up to this. Everything leads up to this. The law was a tutor to what? Christ. It was a tutor to all of this. It, it was, there was a purpose behind all of the Old Testament. There was a purpose for the way God did things. There was a purpose for everything he did. And here comes said purpose. In the man, in the baby, Jesus Christ. Do you remember, again in Luke, let me go over to chapter 2. Turn over there if you want to chapter 2. Because this is where you get into the big parts of Luke dealing with the birth of Christ. Yeah, there's a whole bunch going on here. And I, in my notes, I was going through and I wrote down what I could see as, you know, sort of a timeline of this birth. Because you read different accounts and you get different flavors of this birth. But to sum up the birth story, Mary was given to Joseph. And Joseph finds out that Mary is already pregnant, which provides a very uh, interesting thing for Joseph to figure out. What am I going to do here? He does the right thing. Joseph is a just man. God chose wisely. No surprise there that God chose wisely about Mary and God chose wisely about Joseph as a human father for Jesus. And Joseph does the right thing. He doesn't put her away. He doesn't divorce her. He doesn't send her away. He takes her. He loves her. And they have a child, Jesus Christ. They, there's a census going on. They go to Bethlehem from Nazareth. The shepherds follow the birth. 
Here again is where, you know, the world has messed up the birth and the, the you know, whole Christmas scene and all of this stuff. It's, it's all jumbled mess because the shepherds visit following the birth. By the time the Magi get there, he's a little bit older than he is in the manger. There's angels worshiping in Luke 2. Eight days later, Jesus is circumcised. He's given his name. But between verses 21 and 24 in, in, in Luke here, between 21 and 24, there's got to be like 41 days that are happening because of the purification that the woman would go through. So there's, there's some time in between 21 and 22 and 24, and at least 41 days here. They meet Simeon and Anna. And soon after that 41st day, Luke skips the return to Bethlehem altogether. But now they're staying, they're going back, they're staying at a house. And there again is, because we covered this when I first came, about how I think the, the manger is not this manger, it's a guest house in a house. It's where the, the animals are kept. And he's now staying in a, in a, in a house, in a, in a house, not a, a guest house, a guest room, Cataluma versus a Oikian. Now the Magi go to the Herod's palace. The Magi bring gifts to the family. The angel tells them, you've got to get out of here because the boys are going to be killed. They flee. So the angel comes back. He tells them, come on back. Then they settle in Nazareth, Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee, and he's called a Nazarene. All of that goes on in, this, in this tiny little, these tiny little chapters here, bringing Jesus to earth. But I want you to pay attention to one part here that I want to pull out from this. Look at verse 14. As the angels come and they're praising God, they're saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace and earth, and on earth, excuse me, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, just for a minute there, think about what they're saying. Because a lot of times, that's something you hear at the, the holidays all the time. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Peace on earth. What are they saying when they say, and goodwill or peace on earth. I think they're saying something much better, much deeper than just everybody's going to be nice to each other. There's niceness now here. What is now here on the earth? The personification of peace is now on the earth. The personification of not just peace, but the personification of peace. In Jesus Christ, the personification of peace now dwells on the earth with men. What a, what, a, what a gigantic statement that is. Not just peace, but the personification of it. When you think about love, it's not just love, but God is love. Love is nothing without God. This is, there's, nothing without peace, or there's, not, there's no peace without Christ. Christ is peace. And now the, the, the angels are telling everyone that will listen... The personification of peace, go ahead and raise that time. The personification, the, the reality of peace is on earth with you. As God is breaking into man's history, once again, he's, he's coming in. So, Jesus is born. They're finally back. And there's some time that we don't really get much flavor of, isn't there? There's not much about Jesus' early days. Not much at all. So, we're going to jump ahead to something here. And again, I don't know what these exactly looked like in the first century. I'm going to put a symbol here, oops, so you know what it is, or at least what it could be. Where are we going? Jesus is now, yes, Jesus is a tiny bit older now, isn't he? We go from birth to boom. 
12. He's a boy when the Magi come to see him. He's a little bit older than a baby when the Magi come to see him. The child in verse 40, a different word that, that Luke uses to describe Jesus. It gives a more of a flavor. But in verse 41, it describes his parents going to Jerusalem. And in verse 42, and when he became 12, they went there according to the custom of the feast. So boom, we're already to 12 years old. And so they go to the festival like their custom is to do. And when they get there, they take part in the festival, they do all this stuff, and they're traveling in this group. And what happens? You all know what happens. It's just like kids, you wander off. You turn around, and the kids are gone. As soon as they know how to, at least I remember wanting my children to walk, right? When they were crawling, you want them to move. But then when they start moving, what do you want them to do? You want them to stop moving. As they move too much, and they get into things they shouldn't, and you have to go find them. Yeah. As soon as they start moving. And, and that's what happens here. Jesus has moved. He's gone. And they don't even know he's gone. They start traveling back because they're in this big group. And they, they finally look around and, and realize, Jesus is not here. Right. I've often wondered, what, did it, what is it that, that sparked their, uh, hey, he's not here? Was it, oh, he, di- he didn't ask me for something. Or he didn't, yeah, he didn't, ask, he didn't ask for the extra food. He didn't, he didn't bug me today. What, what's going on? Where, where's Jesus? They finally realize he's not there, which is easy to do, apparently, because they're traveling in a big group. They've got family. They've got people with them. You think he's with somebody else. You take off, and he's not. Man, that reminds me of, of when I was traveling with my, not traveling, we were going to the airport to pick up some, some family. And at SeaTac, you know those trams that run to get you different places? I, I don't remember exactly how old I was now, but I was young enough to not know the difference between what I was doing. I was not paying attention, and I was young enough to be scared on my own. I know that because I remember the scared part. But we're standing there waiting for the tram, and the tram comes, and I get on the tram. The door's closed, and we start to move. Then I turn around, and I'm the only one on the tram. My parents are still standing back there because it was busy or something. I don't remember what their excuse was for not getting on the tram. I was ready. Yeah, it was was their fault. I knew what we were doing. We were going. Yeah, <laughs> they were, were they doing that on purpose? Is that what you're thinking, Gurdon? Yeah, let him go. <laughs> they were just looking for a way to get rid of me. But anyway, a nice gentleman on the tram calmed me down once I figured out I was by myself and helped me get back to my parents. That, you know, all of a sudden you could just lose somebody sometimes in a crowd. It's easy. And that's what happens here with Jesus. He gets lost in the crowd. But I want you to look at something that Jesus tells them. When they finally figure out and they go back and they look, they spend some days looking. Verse 48, they saw him. They were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Which sounds like a parent. Because I would be angry. I would be irritated. Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said... Why is it that you were looking for me? I'm not sure what I would do as a parent. What? What did you say to me? (laughs) Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Did you not know that I had to be about my father's affairs in the things of my father? Man, Jesus already knows it. 12 years old, he knows something about his purpose. There's something that Jesus knows. I don't think we know everything that he's that is going through him and, and how God is working in him and how he is growing up. But there is something special about this Jesus that he knows 
I need to be here. And you know what? You guys shouldn't have been so surprised that I was here. Because you should know that I am about my father's business. You go from here and you jump right into Jesus grown up, pretty much. That 52 there kind of gives you a summation of, of where, where he's going from 12 up. He's increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Yeah, he's, he, there's a lot of time that gets lost here. A lot of time. And I want to jump over to John chapter 2 because we go from there to, I think, the beginning of a Galilean ministry that, that is unique to the book of John. You don't find this in the other synoptic gospels. In the book of John, he attends the wedding at Cana, doesn't he? And they run out of wine, and his mom knows something about Jesus that he can take care of this situation. But he also says, I'm not sure you understand why I'm here. It's, it's an interesting exchange that we don't have time to get through between mom and son, that she knows something, and he's, he, knows, he knows something. But there's some misunderstanding between what's going on here. But anyway, what I find interesting here is he helps out this wedding party, and he makes sure that these, these guests get the very best wine, right? right. They, they say it's the very best wine. Very best. You save the very best for last. And what does he do? He's, Jesus, through this miracle, has sparked debate throughout the history of, of Christianity. Drinking is right or wrong. And we totally miss the whole point of what is going on in the wedding of Cana. And he's starting off in his ministry. I think this is, a, this is one of the Lord of quality. This is a Lord of quality. He's going to take you from plain old water to the very best wine. The Lord of absolute quality. From water to wine. It's kind of like our transformation. Go ahead, Ty, and erase that. Kind of like our transformation. When we let him have his way with us, he'll take us from that mundane water to the very best wine because we let him work in us. So we go from birth to 12 to beyond 12, now in the, in the ministry of, of Galilee, there in John 2. And now we're sort of going to not totally backtrack, but we're going to go back to the first person that we talked about and go back to a man named John who is out doing something. What's he out doing? He is proclaiming the, re or the coming of the Messiah and he's also doing something else. He's, sh he's showing people that they need something. Go over to Matthew. Yeah, Matthew chapter 3. The first seven verses there kind of give you a clue as to what, what John the Baptist is doing. One through seven, he's, he's baptizing, he's coming in the wilderness of, of Judea preaching, and he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's baptizing all those that are coming out to them. They're confessing their sins. They're being baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. There in verse 7, he says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to, to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Jesus, or John is out there baptizing and, and preaching the kingdom of heaven. Now go back over to John chapter 2. 
from Matthew 3 to John 2. And you'll see as, as John is preaching, he's also doing something else. He's answering questions of people because in John 2, they ask him, who are you? What are you doing? Verse 21, he says, well, verse 20, he says, I'm not the Christ. And so they ask him, are you then Elijah? He says, no, I'm not. I say, are you the prophet? No. They said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Verse 23, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now what happens? He starts pointing him out, pointing Jesus out. Starts pointing him out to his disciples. <clears throat> are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Which is an interesting statement too. But even after the baptism of Jesus, he's pointing them out. Look at 129. The next day as he's talking, as he's baptizing, as he's proclaiming the one to come, he says the next day, Jesus saw, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on whom behalf I've said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Here's the first glimpse of that, at least from, from John's mouth, this existed before me, this I am that's going to be shown in John. Did not recognize him, but in order that he might be manifested in Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. So Jesus has been baptized. He came to John to get baptized to fulfill all righteousness. John has been told this guy is going to be his son. This is the Son of the living God. And now he's pointing him out. And in John 1, 35, the next day, John says, says to two of his disciples, there he is, there's the guy. There's the one that has come to take away the sin of the world. His disciples, he's starting to point to Jesus. What I find interesting about this is, look at how they react. I can't remember if we've talked about this before, but this has always fascinated me, the way the disciples act. He looked at them and, and, upon, and he looked upon Jesus in verse 36 and he walked and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and they did what? Followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and beheld them following and said to them, What do you seek? That right there is interesting to me. That Jesus is noticing these guys that are following him. They've been pointed out, they've been pointed to him by John. But they're just following at this point. But Jesus doesn't just let them follow, does he? He turns around and he says, what are you looking for? It, it kind of tells you that Jesus does not let you follow unaccountable. He's going to make you accountable. When, you, when you're following, he's going to turn around and he's going to say, what do you want? You, you can't just follow behind me and, and not engage. I'm going to engage you. You've got to engage me. There's got to be some relationship here. You can't just follow behind. You've got to be engaged. Go ahead and erase that time. You've got to be engaged. He won't let us follow without engaging Him. He's not going to let us follow Him today without engaging Him. So we go from His baptism 
the, the disciples being pointed out and the disciples starting to be called. Because right after that, there's some, there's some disciple calling there. Then we skip into his ministry. And this is who Jesus is. What are one of the ways we describe him as a what? What kind of a teacher is he? Great teacher, a master teacher. He is this master teacher who uses these parables to talk to people, to, to, to tell the story of the kingdom that's coming. He speaks with authority, and they notice that. They notice that he speaks with authority, not like our scribes, not like our teachers. He speaks with authority. There's a difference in Jesus' teaching and his preaching and his, in his parables. And do and you guys remember what they told you when you're a kid? What is a parable? It's a what with a what? Life application with divine truth. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's all of the, the, these quaint little sayings. It's, it, it is something easily and relatable too, though. Easily relatable. That they, they can understand what Jesus... At least to a point they can understand what Jesus is saying. They, a lot of them miss the big point. But that's part of the point too. That the people who have those ears will hear. The people who understand will understand. I think his, his, his parables are to make you ask those questions too. What does that mean? What exactly are you saying? What, let, me, let me understand better. And the disciples ask for that too, don't they? They say, what are you trying to say? And he does reveal the inner truths to the disciples. He does start letting them in on the secrets here so that they can understand. But this, this master teacher starts and begins and goes through the synoptic gospels and the... Um, and even some of John with uh, some parables. Where did my eraser go? Well, now we're stuck. No, that's okay. I got it. He's right. It's right here. There again is a, another moment where you don't know where your kids are. <laughs> All right. So we've gone from there. And now, now he's a master teacher. And the, he also does things called miracles or signs. So... For here, you, you've got the master teacher, but you've also got the man, the man who performs signs. But what do these signs do? Confirm. They point to something bigger than even him. They point to God. They're, 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 there's a reason that these signs happen. There's a reason that he does these. And in the synoptics and in John, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke... There's about 18 in Mark and Matthew and 19 in Luke. In John, there's seven distinct signs. There's a lot more in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, like the possessed in Capernaum, Peter's mother-in-law, the leper cleansing, the catching of the fish, the paralytic being healed, the witherized hands, centurion servant, all of these here, I, I wrote them all down for myself, 5,000 being fed, walking on water, all of these things that, that happen in, in these, and that's all the point to... Something bigger. How, how, how in the world are you doing this? What, what is this? How do you cast out these demons? What does that mean? It's all to point. And, and what does Hebrews tell us about signs? The, these things were to do what? In chapter 2, there's a reason that these things happen. Even beyond Jesus, because we know that getting into territory that we're not yet there yet, because in the letters we see the, the disciples continuing to do... And the apostles continuing to do uh, miracles and signs. And in verse, or chapter 2, 1 through 4, Hebrews kind of gives us the, 
the reason for those signs then, too. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, here, here's where it comes in. After it was first spoken through the Lord, confirmed to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. What is he doing there? He's confirming his word. He's confirming that I am who I say I am. And you can trust me because I am who I say I am. I'm going to confirm what I'm telling you. I'm going to do these signs. And Jesus does the same thing. These signs that point to God. I am the I am. I am who I say I am. I am someone bigger than just the people in, in your group, the, the bigger than, than your teachers, bigger than your scribes. I am someone who's existed forever. And that leads us from signs. Go ahead and erase that for me, Ty. From those signs to the other things in John that, point, or that, that stand out and that are unique to John and that we've covered at length before. And those would be the what? What do you think those are? The I am statements, yes. I am. I couldn't think of a good picture for I am. Because I am kind of sums up I am. I don't know what else to draw for I am. Except I am. I am. That is such a powerful phrase right there. I am. And how many, they say there's seven I am statements, right? At least, yeah. Because, you know, when, when I'm looking at John, I looked at John chapter 4. And in, and in John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. And I, I think this is the first I am. Even though it's not categorized in the I am statements, uh, the traditional I am statements anyway. It's the same phrasing as in, in John chapter 6 where he says, I am the bread. So he's saying the exact same thing in verse 26. When Jesus gets done with this conversation with her, and she's finally kind of warmed up to the idea that he's just... More than just a guy. Now he's a prophet. Now he's something else. And he's saying, these, these true spirit, these true worshipers that God wants, they're going to worship him in this way. Verse 26, he says, I who speak to you am he. Literally, that's an I am statement. I who speak to you, I am. I am. That's that, I am. He's, he's saying here, here's the basis for the rest of the ones coming. I am who I say I am. I am eternal. I am the bread. I am the light, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and life, the way, the truth, the life, the truth, the vine. I am these things. These absolute statements that say, I am God. And people did recognize that, didn't they? People did recognize when he said, before Abraham existed, I am. And what did they say? Hmm, I don't like that statement. I am. So you, you've got this master teacher who teaches in parables. You've got this man who is, who is doing these signs and these wonders, pointing to God and pointing to a bigger purpose for him. And then you've got these seven or more statements in John saying, I am eternal. I am deity. I'm not just a regular prophet here. I am someone bigger and better. Go ahead, Ty. And again, we are glossing over all of his ministry pretty much here because... We're going to go from the way he taught, how he taught, and who he was in the I Am statements to where he ended up, which was 
the cross. And I'm drawing your traditional, traditional view of the cross. This is where he ends up. His first prediction for that in Matthew chapter 16, if you want to look at that, it's over in Matthew 16. When Jesus starts saying, I'm going to go to the cross. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to die. 16 verse 21. This is just after Peter has said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus predicts his own death in verse 21 says, From that time Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Here again is another, I, uh, another inkling of deity. Who predicts this kind of thing? Who says, I'm going to be doing this, this, and this? And then it happens. Who's going to say exactly this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and it happens. Again, another point to his deity in Matthew and in every other place where he says, I'm going to go and suffer. And in verse 22, Peter doesn't like that, does he? What does he say? He says, that's not going to happen, God, or Jesus, Lord. This is never going to happen to you. Again, we've talked about that before and how Peter has got different vision here. He's not looking at this. Through the God eyes, he's looking at it through man's eyes. And that's not going to happen. I'm not going to lose my leader this way. I'm not going to lose my rabbi this way. But no, that's the way it happens. Verse 24, Jesus says, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And just think about that verse for a second in their day. After what Jesus just said. what What is Jesus saying to the people who are saying, I want to go with you? That's pretty heavy. You need to be ready to die. You need to be ready to give your life. I'm going to give my life. What are you willing to give? Are you going to be willing to give your life? Again, another prediction in Matthew chapter 20, just a couple over. Matthew 20, 17 through 19. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the twelve disciples aside by themselves on the way and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Again, this prediction of how he's going to die and some details in how he's going to die. Another point to deity. But nobody truly gets it, right? Nobody truly understands that. And we definitely don't want that to happen because that's not the way it should go down in in our minds. That's not the way our leader goes out. He's not hung on a tree. Go ahead and erase that tie. So you've got the cross. And from the cross, yes. Because they come, he's betrayed, he's tried. And from the cross, we go to the grave. But the grave couldn't hold him. We have to go to the grave first, though, because that's what he says. I'm going to die. I'm going to be, bo- I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to be raised again, buried in a rich man's tomb. The tomb is sealed and guarded, but then the stone is rolled away. Ugh. The disciples come. The women come. 
The angels meet the women at the tomb there in John 20. John chapter 20, verse 2. Look at, uh, look at the two disciples as they are running to the tomb. You've got an older disciple and you've got a younger disciple. <clears throat> and ostensibly, the, the younger disciple is, is John. And Peter is running with John. And John makes a point to let him know that, that he can beat Peter in a foot race. He ran ahead faster in verse 4 than Peter and came to the tomb first. But look at the actions of the two disciples. He gets to the tomb first and he looks into the tomb. But what does Peter do? He just goes right into the tomb. Again, that, that is a very Peter thing to do, isn't it? I'm just going in. Don't, don't just look around the corner, John. I'm going in. Let's go all in here. If, if he's gone, he's gone. I want to know. Peter goes in and he sees the wrappings, the linens lying there. And this is where, with the burial, with the cross, to do a little backtracking there, you've got the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, too. The seven traditional sayings there. Father, forgive them. Today you'll see me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. Why have you forsaken me? I thirst. It's finished. I command my spirit. And all of those have very specific meanings, too. But you go from his ministry to the cross, to the death, the burial... But then you also get to something else. You get to the resurrection. Because you can't have the resurrection without the burial. Go ahead, Ty. <clears throat> in the resurrection, I'm going to look at Luke 24 specifically for the resurrection because I like the way the Luke dovetails into Acts because it's right on par with Acts. It's his second account. But you go from death and burial resurrection to... Or death... Crucifixion and death to resurrection. <laughs> and Jesus shows himself to a couple people there in Luke chapter 24. He shows himself to some men on the road to Emmaus, right? And they don't recognize him until they've, they've talked. He even goes through and he starts, starts talking about why this has to happen. He, he, he opens their eyes only after he has breaking, broke bread with them at the table. He's blessed it. And he begins giving, giving it to them. And then in verse 31, their eyes are opened. And then they realize, oh man, while our hearts were burning, we didn't recognize who this was. This was and he was explaining all these scriptures to us. Verse 27, he's gone back through Moses and he's, he's explained all the prophets and explained to them all the things concerning himself on the way to Emmaus. And that repeats itself. That happens twice. Look over in verse 44 of that same chapter. After he's been touched in, in verse 39, he has flesh and bones and they can see it. <clears throat> and they've given him something to eat. He's eaten something. Verse 44, he says, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. An Old Testament, a Jewish term there saying the, the, the entire... Old Testament here is going to be fulfilled in me. And he's about to open their minds, that very next verse, open their minds to understand the Scriptures. I think, I think that understanding goes right back to what he just said. Recognition of, of everything from Moses to the prophets. That, that, okay, I'm, I'm getting that now. Because they still don't get everything that they need to get until they get the Spirit. But he's giving them a glimpse here of the prophecies and the things that, that, that were foretold about him, Moses, the prophets, and Psalms there. 
And then it kind of bleeds into Acts 1 as he's sending them to Jerusalem, as they go to Jerusalem there. He's blessing them and he parted from them. It kind of bleeds into Acts 1 there, the end of Luke 24. That's why I kind of like the way it ends. But Jesus ends his earthly ministry reminding them right here about where we've been too. Where have we been? We've been through Genesis, Exodus, all of these Old Testament books. And they've had a lot of amazing stories in them of themselves. And you could read them and, and be entertained and, and be enlightened and be challenged by the stories themselves. But every single one of these books, every single thing is pointing to someone, to something. And Jesus is saying that all of these things are pointing to me. And I've just proved that with the death, the burial, and the resurrection. From Genesis, what points to him in Genesis? What jumps out at you from Genesis? The seed line? Okay, that's going to, the serpent's going to bruise a heel, he's going to crush his head. There's something significant about that. From the very beginning, there's Jesus coming. What about in Exodus? Where, where do you see Jesus in Exodus? Passover lamb? Man. What about Leviticus? Where do you see Jesus in Leviticus? Sacrifices. Oh, you could see him through all of these things. I've got several of them written down in my Bible here because I wanted to go through all the Old Testament. We don't have the time to go all through the Old Testament and see Jesus in every single one of them. But if you look at Numbers 10.10, 10, water from the rock, what is that? Deuteronomy, a prophet with a mouth like me. Raise up another one like me. Joshua. Jesus is that captain. Same, similar name here. Jesus is that captain. He's the forerunner there. And judges. People sin. God sends punishment. People cry. God sends judges. God sent Jesus. Ruth. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. Jesus is our brother. First and second Kings, first and second Samuel, the rulers. David raised up Jesus through his seed. Nehemiah, the restorer. He's going to restore. All of these things, all these things and more are pointing to Jesus Christ himself, which is where we're at in the four accounts of the gospel. And Jesus still today, like that, that, that interaction with the disciples, he's saying, it's all about me. It's, it's pointing to me. But what are you going to do with me? I'm not going to let you just follow and not do anything. I'm not going to let you follow and not say anything. I'm not going to let you follow behind and just admire me from a distance. I want to know what you want. What do you want to do? Do you want to change your life? Do you want to go from water to wine? Or do you want to stay as water? Do you want to be renewed, restored? Or do you want to be your old self? Where are you going? What are you doing? He asks us the same question that he asked his disciples there today. The same scriptures point to him today as they did then. And the same question is to you today. What do you do with him? Are you going to follow him? And not talk, not engage, or are you ready to engage him today? If you're ready to engage him, do that this morning as we stand and as we sing.